Pentecost had come, and they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now, there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they said, are not all these things, uh, these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. People of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No. This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show portents in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. They shall, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. And then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Some years ago, it's been quite a few years now, I went with a few of my friends down to Knoxville to hear a joint lecture by Will Williman and Stanley Hauerwas, two theology professors at the time from Duke. They were both really opinionated and sarcastic, which I think is rather off-putting in clergy types. Actually, as you might imagine, I really liked it. 
Well, the gathering was small enough that we were able to go up afterward and, and we introduce ourselves to them. It was pretty exciting stuff. They were gracious as we explained how much we enjoyed the lecture. Hauerwas quickly moved on to talk to somebody else. But Wilman said, yeah, <laughs> it is fun to do these things with Stanley, but I always feel a little like I should apologize for him. I mean, Stanley's uh, like a theological insurrectionist. When we do these lightning raids, he stirs up trouble and we just take off. <laughs> and we laughed, thinking privately, I think, that what Wilman had just described was the kind of thing that each of us would love to do for a living. Well, I thought the whole encounter was sort of coming to a close. You know how it is in these receiving lines. But <laughs> Wilman was just getting warmed up. He said, you know, we were at a place one time, it was so bad, and this, this young uh, Methodist minister came up to us after the presentation. It was sort of like this one, and he was in tears. And he said, I don't know what to do. A few years back, I took my first placement down in North Carolina, and everything seemed to be going fine. But the KKK were having demonstrations, and I stood up in the pulpit, and I said, we're Christians. We have to speak up when confronted by injustice especially the kind of blatant hatred spewed by these white supremacists. Well, the young minister said there were people in the congregation who thought I was being too political, and they started making noise. And next thing I knew, my district superintendent told me that they were going to have to move me to a new congregation, one where there wasn't so much controversy. It was difficult, but I figured, you know, the next place had to be an improvement, and it was for a little while, until there were some racial tensions within the school system. And once again, I found myself in the pulpit preaching about how Christians need to speak up on behalf of the oppressed and the marginalized. And afterward, one of the leaders of the church came to me and said, son, we don't talk about that kind of stuff in church. And I said, well, I'm not sure what gospel you're reading, but the one I follow says I can't keep quiet in the face of this kind of intolerance. And no sooner did I get home than I got a call from my district superintendent telling me that this was not working out. And they were probably going to have to find me another place, a more suitable congregation. So we moved to the place that I'm at now, and everything's been going just fine. Until recently, we've had a group in town who's trying to run off migrant workers, saying that they're ruining our economy and our public life. And, of course, I can't keep my mouth shut, so I stood up in a church last Sunday and said that we're Christians, treating immigrants like that. That's not who we are. And sure enough, I got pulled aside after Wednesday night services by someone who wanted to let me know that people were getting upset with me taking up for the Mexicans. And William said, well, Willman said, I, I just sort of stood there and he looked at, at, at Stanley and me, and he said, I, I can feel the, the trouble starting all over again, and it's the same thing. Only this time, my wife said that she likes this town, and the kids are happy in school, and she's not moving again. I feel so alone. What do I do? And Willman said, I felt so awful for this young guy. I almost started crying myself. But then Stanley just sort of stood there and looked at him, and he said, hmm. Well, God's a mean son of a gun. I hope no one ever told you this was going to be easy. 
And he just turned around and walked away. And Willman said, I could have killed him. And I remember thinking, man, that really seems pretty cold. <laughs> I mean, it's not very pastoral at all. This poor guy's just looking for a little compassion, and, 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 and Howard wants to just sort of let him have it. I mean, kind of a jerk move. But, I, you know, a few years later, I was having problems at a congregation myself. And I thought back to what Harawas said to that poor young Methodist minister about, hope nobody ever told you this is going to be easy. And I thought, you know, sometimes in the midst of my own struggles, I thought, sometimes that's actually one of the most pastoral things you can hear. And why is that? Well, the temptation is to believe that if you're doing the right thing for all the right reasons, then you should just sort of naturally win everybody's approval. I mean, how can anybody be mad at you? You're just trying to do the right thing. But that's not how it works, is it? Sometimes doing the right thing can get you fired. Ask Jesus, sometimes doing the right thing can get you killed. I want to say to folks who claim that Jesus makes everything better, have you ever actually met Jesus? I mean, I don't know about you, but every time I bump into him, he's stomping around in steel-toed boots, busting up the furniture, and smashing the good dishes. Following Jesus can introduce you to troubles that you never would have had if you just stayed home and watched Jeopardy. So I was thinking again about Harwas the other day, working on this sermon for Pentecost. And Pentecost is the day when the, the, the church celebrates the, the promised coming of the Holy Spirit and its own birth. It's a pretty big deal even though we don't pay as much attention to it as we pay to, say, Christmas or Easter. And why do you think that is? I mean, why does, why does Pentecost receive such short shrift? Well, I have a suspicion about that. I mean, if you remember where we are in the story, Jesus' disciples have just recently lost their leader, Jesus, as the book of Acts opens, has spent 40 days with his followers after his resurrection. Then he takes off, returns to God in the ascension, and Jesus' followers are once again left without their leader. But see, Jesus didn't just take off on them. He promised them that the Holy Spirit would come to them, bringing them the power they would need to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And generally speaking, we hear the, the, this promise, uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit, as, as good news, right? I mean, the disciples are afraid of what will happen to them when Jesus leaves, and he says, don't worry, the Holy Spirit's coming. The Holy Spirit is called the paraclete in John's gospel, which is usually translated as the advocate, or more often the comforter. And comfort seems to be precisely what the disciples are looking for as they face an uncertain future without the very leader who'd gotten them into this whole mess to begin with. But as David Lowe's has pointed out, when the Holy Spirit comes, it turns out that everything starts to get uncomfortable for Jesus' followers. 
I mean, it sounds good when Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will give them power to be his witnesses until you start looking at what being a witness for Jesus would ultimately cost the disciples. In the book of Acts, witnesses for Jesus wind up humiliated, imprisoned, run out of town on a rail, and sometimes they even end up dead. And so you can imagine the disciples experiencing the coming of the Holy Spirit in a great rush of violent wind and tongues of fire over their heads as, as, as sort of initially a comforting phenomenon. You know, sort of the, like the Justice League or the Avengers showing up on the scene just in time to save the day. But the next thing you know, the Holy Spirit is leading these anxious disciples around by the nose getting them in trouble every time they turn around. Now, read this way, the coming of the Holy Spirit brings more disruption than comfort, more challenges than victories. And it makes me wonder if we do ourselves any favors when we pretend that the challenges that come from following Jesus are some sort of aberration, that that, that somehow when our faith costs us something, somewhere there's been a breakdown in the system. But what if holy disruption in the followers, in the life of the followers of Jesus, as the nerds say, is a feature and not a bug? That is to say, what if the power that comes to us from the Holy Spirit isn't just to make us comfortable, but to make us capable of standing courageously, of of withstanding the disruption to the evil systems that oppress God's children, of bearing witness to the expansive love God desires to manifest in this new realm, which is even now unfolding before us? What if the most pastoral thing we can tell ourselves when we run into trouble because we've taken a stand for our faith, when we've fought against injustice and intolerance is, hmm, I hope nobody ever told you this was going to be easy. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, given the choice between being comfortable or being faithful, I often, I'm just as likely to choose the Barca lounger and a cup of coffee. I mean, doing the right thing can be difficult. But maybe the power Jesus promises us when he sends the Holy Spirit isn't just the power to be a spiritual superhero, but simply the power to endure in the name of the truth, the strength to hang on when it looks like for all the world like we're going to go down for the last time. And you say, well, okay, fine, smart guy, but what does that power even look like? Well, I mean, you take a look at the story of the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and you might be tempted to locate the power in the violent wind, or in the tongues of fire, or more likely in the ability of the disciples to speak each in a different language. I mean, it's all, it's all miraculous, all amazing demonstrations of power, but I think those are only signs of the larger power that's at work. I mean, take a look. After all the fireworks is when the real disruption takes place because then Peter stands up to address the crowd. Ah, yes, Peter, preaching. That does take some courage. I mean, I get that. 
But wait, if we stop there, we might be tempted to think that the power of the Holy Spirit is revealed in courageous individuals. And I mean, I won't deny that courage, especially as it's revealed in individuals is an important thing. But Peter isn't a lone individual when he stands up to address the crowd. Look closely at the text. Luke tells us that when Peter raised his voice and addressed them, he was standing with the eleven. All of them together. You see, the power of holy disruption is present when the followers of Jesus stand together to offer witness to the truth. The power of the Spirit is less to be found in the heroic individual than in the community, knit together by the power of a common witness on behalf of those whom Jesus loves. And who is it that Jesus loves? Everyone. And let's face it, there's a lot of pain in the world. Pain caused by injustice and hatred and fear. I mean, you only have to turn on TV to know that things are tough. And who exactly are the latest targets of those in power? I mean, trans kids now have to worry about not only the daily bullying they must endure, but they also have to worry about the bathroom police, about people in, 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 in control singling them out for further humiliation. Muslims just looking to live life, raise a family, contribute to a better world. I mean, they got to worry about political demagogues and people stirred up by that intolerance. They have to face daily the pressure of a culture that has been pretty clear doesn't want them here. Women who want nothing more than to become the people God created them to be receive the often subtle but persistent message that our culture puts out that they're not quite good enough, not smart enough, not rational enough to fulfill the promise of their gifts. And if they don't listen, if they keep at it, when they get told in more explicit terms that they're playing the women card, even in church, maybe especially in church, Refugees running away from violence in their own cultures are told that the fear they're trying to escape is nothing compared to the rest of the world's fear of them. The poor, the disabled, those without health care, those racked by mental illness, the houseless, those afraid they'll get fired or evicted if anyone finds out whom they love, the unemployed, the, the addicted, those against whom the DAC seems hopelessly stacked because of their race or ethnicity. I mean, we know the targets. Who they are and who's after them. And black people have to stand against a system that's convinced harassing, incarcerating, beating, and killing them is not only necessary to keep them in their place, but in some ways twisted and evil as it is, that it's an expression of justice to do so. In his 1967 Massey lecture, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. talked about the kind of holy disruption that is set loose when the Holy Spirit unleashes discomfort on the faithful. The dispossessed of this nation, King said, the poor, both white and Negro, 
live in a cruelly unjust society. They must organize a revolution against the injustice, not against the lives of their fellow citizens, but against the structures through which the society is refusing to take the means which have been called for and which are at hand to lift the load of poverty. There are millions of poor people in this country who have very little or even nothing to lose. If they can be helped to take action together, they will do so with a freedom and a power that will be a new and unsettling force in our complacent national life. We have a sense of the injustice that people face. We, we, we know it in our bones. But we who have been given the Holy Spirit, we have the power together to be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. To be those who find their voices imbued with the power that the Holy Spirit brings to stand up and say, no, that's not right. We won't allow that to stand. We've been called together as a community to unleash that holy disruption on the world. We are, because of Pentecost, a new unsettling force, bringing Jesus' love and compassion to a world that increasingly feels on the edge of eating itself alive. Look, nobody said it was going to be easy. But it doesn't have to be lonely. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.